I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing that was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Beyond the Mouse podcast, the podcast for all things Disney, for NPR Illinois Community Voices, and for the Front Row Network. My name is Craig. I'm your host. I'm joined today by my two co-hosts, Vanessa Ferguson. Hello. And Brett Rutherford. Hello there. And we are so excited today to bring you another really fun and interesting interview. We can't wait to dive in and speak all things Disney with Jeff Curdy. This may not be a name that comes to mind immediately when you think about the Disney company, but I can assure you that this person knows just about more about Disney and the Walt Disney Company than anyone else that you can speak to. He's really an author, a historian, truly, and also a former Imagineer as well. We can't wait to talk to him. Brett, talk to me about how excited you are. I'm so excited. You know, when we found out that we were interviewing Jeff, um, I had to look through, well, some of his titles of his books, and I looked at the titles of my books, and I have some of his books. Oh, my gosh. I have quite a number of them. I was excited now to you talk. You do have quite them. a number of them, and you actually let us, uh, you were generous yes, enough shared. to let us borrow some of them and yeah. share them with us. And it's it's remarkable the amount that he is able to bring to uh, in the life that he's able to bring to these books. He's got so many, so so many books, over 40 books written uh, for the Disney company right now. Vanessa, your thoughts on before we dive into the interview here. Oh, I'm so excited. He knows everything about Disney. So I'm going to ask him where was Walt and what did he have for lunch on October 17th, 1955? I bet he'll know. Because he knows everything. Walt's chilly at Disneyland. How about that? So maybe not. Probably. See, see, I know a lot too. I'm not, well, (laughs) I don't know as much as he does. But I have his book, so maybe someday. Who knows? Quick biography on Mr. Curdy. Jeff Curdy is one of the leading authorities of the Walt Disney Company and its history, the author of more than 40 books, a writer, director of an award-winning documentaries, and a respected public speaker, host, and panel moderator. A Seattle, Washington native, Curdy has worked for the Walt Disney Imagineering, the theme park design division of the Walt Disney Company, and then for the corporate special projects department of Disney. Since 1995, he has enjoyed a career as an author, writer, and consultant in motion picture, theater, and themed entertainment industries. And now, without further ado, our conversation with Jeff Curdy. We are excited to welcome to the podcast and to NPR Community Voices, Jeff Curdy. Hello, hello. Jeff, we are so excited to speak to you today about just your your um, stellar career in the Walt Disney Company from Imagineering and being an author of so many books and so much research that you've put in. So we have several questions for you and I will start you off here on the new book that you just released uh, this past week, The Disney Monorail, Imagineering a Highway in the Sky. How did you decide on this particular topic for a publication or really any topic for a publication? Is that a collaborative effort between you and Disney Publishing or is it something where if you have a passion about a certain project, you are able to then pursue that at this point? Yes. <laughs> great. <laughs> That's a great answer. Next question. No, sorry. <laughs> um, the books that I've done over the decades because I'm elderly now and have done lots of books with Disney. Um, They tend to come from 
a couple of different directions. Uh, very often they're assignments. Somebody will say, we're doing a book on Tangled and who do we want to do that? And they'll say, do you want to do that? And I'll say, don't be an idiot. Of course I want to do that. Um, sometimes they come about through uh, uh, my own suggestion or my own pitch. Uh, a couple of those recently have been Travels with Walt Disney and uh, the Disney Christmas card uh, books. Those were both based on a conversation. I have two really fantastic editors that I've worked with for a long time at Disney. As a matter of fact, Wendy Lefcon, who's the senior editor at Disney Editions, she and I have known each other since 1994. Uh, and I sort of owe my literary career to Wendy. I have another editor, um, Jennifer Eastwood, and Jen and I are very simpatico Disney nerds and I've been working with her. She was, she was on the old Disney magazine back. Oh, I love that. So <laughs> did I. So I worked with a couple of editors who I know very well and I've worked with a long time. And very often they'll say, you know, what's on your mind? What are you thinking of? Um, then another direction this comes from is in this case, Jennifer Eastwood was given the opportunity to sort of pitch coffee table book ideas to her sales and marketing group at Disney Publishing. And from what I'm told, she simply said, how about the Disney monorail? And everyone went, ooh, that sounds cool. So Jen called me and said, I pitched this idea and I don't quite know what I got myself into other than it sounds like it's a Jeff Curdy book. So we talked about that for a while and I said, you know, there's somebody else who should work on this book and that's Vanessa Hunt. Now Vanessa works, uh, her, she has a regular day job unlike some of us slackers out here. Um, and she works with the Walt Disney Imagineering Art Collection. And she has a sort of a preservation curatorial, I'm trying to think of what the word is. She helps people get into their collection for uses within merchandise, publications, presentations, and so on. And she also is the author of uh, the poster art of the Disney parks and was the curatorial supervisor of the Disney Maps book. She worked with Pete Doctor and Chris Merritt curating the visuals for the Mark Davis two-volume book that came out. I just knew that with a monorail book, we'd be diving deep into uh, the Walt Disney Imagineering collection. And I asked Jen, I said, do you think Vanessa can come with me? She said, sure. If you want to get paid less and have a co-author, that's great. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's a great offer. How could you resist that? So, <laughs> so as Vanessa and I started to look at all of the visual material, Vanessa also was primary in, in accessing the uh, photo library over there at Walt Disney Imagineering. We knew a great deal of our visual impact would be photographic. I had just finished the Disney Christmas card book working with Paul Walski. And Paul and I are old, old friends. As are Vanessa. I met Vanessa when she was 17 years old and was just a nerdy Disney store clerk in Watsonville, California. 
But um, Paul, I had met in 1990 when we were both at Imagineering. So we are all longtime friends and very simpatico Disney nerds. So between Jen, me, Vanessa, and we brought Paul in because we knew somebody needed to make sense out of all of this visually. So it would work well. So that was, and that was the other thing about bringing a book to, to the table. Bringing that team to the table from the very beginning is very different in a publishing world. So we all sat at the table and sussed out, what do we want this to be? Because not only are we the creators, we're consumers of this kind of stuff. And that's always, I go back, you know, Marty Sklar and his Mickey's 10 Commandments. I always go back to number one, know your audience. Who's this for? And with so many of the books that I do for Disney, the audience is just so big. It's so broad. You, you know, I've got to deal with the dyed-in-the-wool Disney maniac who's going to say, you know, the caption on page 58 is actually slightly ill-worded, and I get an email like that. Wow. But I also have to be thinking about, I always think about the kid that lives inside me who's 15 years old and works a part-time job and is going to go plunk down 50 bucks for this. It's got to really be embracing and not alienating. So I get derided sometimes by, um, shall we say, more scholarly Disney authors than myself, more academic uh, Disney folks who, who sort of deride that breadth of audience that I try to, to embrace. But I, I, I know who's putting their money down for this. And I, it's hard to make everybody happy. Uh, but that's really where these books come from. Um, there's sort of, as I said, the, there's the three avenues of approach. You get invited or you pitch an idea or they come with an idea and incorporate you into the fabric of it. It's not just a, a, a work for hire. You become part of that, that group that puts it together. So that's my incredibly long-winded reply to a quite a simple question. You might have wanted <laughs> to stick with yes. <laughs> well, what I, what I love about it is that you mentioned the broad audience you're going for, and I'm a part of so many different social media groups uh, and, and things uh, that are related around Disney, and it's so awesome to see so many people posting the picture of this book right now that it just came in and they're excited to dive into it because right now we all need something that can remind us of the parks and connect us to Disney and you you through all of your work your prolific work are, are providing that for all of us fans and we are very very grateful for that I do have a follow-up to this question and that's that early this summer we did get to speak to Bob Gurr and he has so many stories about the monorail and and working with Walt and all of that. Could you do uh, maybe a bit of a teaser here for our audience and give us maybe an insight to one of your favorite stories or something interesting that you discovered that maybe you didn't know about going into this project? God bless Bob Gurr. It's so interesting. He's been so part of and eyewitnessing so many of the things. And of course, Bob's a big part of the, the inside of that monorail book. I always love that, that sort of summary of him that if it has wheels or moves at Disneyland, Bob probably had a hand in it somewhere. Um, I think the most interesting thing to me, because at my heart, I continue to do a 
multi-layered and deep dive biographical viewpoint of Walt. And I think that the part of, of doing the research and going through and putting our storyline together was really getting, a, again, a deeper understanding of who Walt Disney was and what made him tick. And I think the component of that research for me was just seeing how generously civic-minded he was about the monorails and the fact that he invited a group of Los Angeles County uh, leadership to Disneyland to preview the monorail and see how it worked and see what you could do. There was probably no greater a civic application of the monorail than could have been done in Los Angeles, particularly at that time because so much groundwork was being laid for giant freeway systems. And running a monorail based on the footprint of that freeway system, you and I look at it right now today and go, well, of course, duh. Walt Disney, of course, looked at it and said, well, duh, in 1959. The thing that I learned was how as I said, generously, he put this idea forward. He had no financial interest. He had no skin in the game, as they say. And the way that he was rebuffed was kind of startling to me. It was, it made my heart hurt a little bit. And to discover that that more or less ended Walt's interest in trying to be that kind of good citizen was like, okay, fine, I'll do my own thing. And my, on my Florida property. Uh, and a monorail is going to be a big part of that. As we assembled the structure of the book and we realized how highly visual it was because really the story of the Disney monorail is a pretty brief one. If you're going to tell it succinctly and not get into data and statistics and things that to me aren't terribly good story, you can look up data and statistics that's why God invented the internet. But the ability to tell a story within the covers of this book was really what we were all after. And we realized a lot of it was going to be visual. So as I developed the arc of the story and the story suggested itself through the art collection, I submitted the manuscript to Jen Eastwood and she sent me an email back and said, leave it to you. You can turn just about any subject into a biographical statement about Walt Disney and who he was. <laughs> and that is, I think, part of the representation of what I discovered. What was the wonderful discovery at the heart of it? Without Walt Disney, you don't have a monorail and you don't have the cultural momentum within Disney that the monorail brought and continues to bring. The establishment of a monorail as a Disney thing, iconically, is because of Walt Disney. I, I said it to somebody asked the other day. I said, well, it's the same reason you can walk into Disneyland and think absolutely nothing that there's a scale replica of an Alpine mountain popping up out of the Groveland of Anaheim. You just go, oh, yeah, it's a Disney thing. And, and I think that that connection was... Uh, a very large arc aha about this book. Absolutely. And we're so thrilled that you're um, helping us have more insight into Walt. And speaking of Walt, Brett has a question about 
uh, a, a museum I think we all want to visit. Yes, can't wait. I'm so looking forward to it. You worked as a creative director, content consultant, and media producer during the construction and opening phases of the Walt Disney Family Museum. I what did. Was it like, what was it like working with Diane Disney Miller? She seemed very intent on reminding her father's fans and everyone that Walt Disney was a father, brother, creative, businessman, but above all, just a man. This is part of why I continue to drive biographically towards ideas that are about Walt Disney, because I started out life as a Disney fan. I saw Mary Poppins when I was five or six years old and it broke my brain and it turned me into a, a, a nascent Disney nerd. And when I got a call from Walt Miller, Walter Elias Disney Miller, who's Walt's grandson. We have this project and I've had three people today tell me I should talk to you. So sitting at my dining room table at my house with Walt Disney's daughter and Walt Disney's grandson was, I was cool. I got to tell you, I kept it. I kept it smooth. They had no idea that inside me there was a little boy screaming his guts out because Walt Disney's daughter and grandson are sitting at my dining room table asking me what I think. That relationship informed so much of how I approach all my Disney work. The interesting thing about Diane and Walter Walter, in many ways, was more of a critical thinker. Walter, Walter is about my age. Walter is, I think I'm two weeks older than he is. Walter had a much more uh, critical thinking approach to Walt Disney than Diane did. Because primarily to Diane, Walt Disney was dad. Mm -hmm. uh, Diane and I used to rub up against each other in... in minor conflicts quite often because a friend of mine reminded me, don't forget that her relationship with Walt Disney is significantly different than yours. Walt Disney never took away your car keys. <laughs> Walt, Walt Disney never hated your boyfriend. Um, Diane didn't have to think critically about her dad until she was an adult. And then what upset and offended her was another reason why I continue to put the Walt in Walt Disney forward in the work that I do. People would iconify him. She said, he's either played as the devil's right-hand man or a plaster saint, and he wasn't either of those extremes. She was extraordinarily sensitive about who he was, and by working with her on a biographical, dimensional, placemaking storytelling about him, we got the best of all of those worlds in telling a Walt Disney story that made him into a man, not the icon, not, oh my gosh, Walt Disney is the coming down from the mountaintop with tablets of, of glory and wisdom, but creating a very understandable state about who he was and why he did what he did. That was really the goal of the museum. In many ways, everything else is decoration. The great thing about a, a placemaking experience is that it's personal. It's you in person having your own individual or small group interaction with this storyline. And 
and that was the purpose, that was the goal, that was the first discussion with Walt Miller and Diane was how do we portray dad? How do we portray my grandpa in a way that has reality and resonance? Um, they were both so fearless too about telling pieces of his story that were hard. The studio strike in 1941 was really hard. And Diane's instinct and Walter's direction was hit it head on. We have to talk about this. This was influential in the rest of his life. Um, it also gave us great understanding and humanity and a great why. We spent a lot of time in the museum, not on when or what the project is, it's why did he do this? Um, we sat at the conference table a great many times during the creation of the museum and people would get off path and uh, Bruce Gordon, who was our show producer and Walter and I and Paula Sigmund Lowry, who were really the core of the content team would very often sort of gavel the table and say, uh-uh, where's Walt? Because people get so caught up in the artistry and the work and the project and the success and the music and all of that, we'd have to drag them back and say, where's Walt? What does this have to do with Walt? What can we reinforce about him? What can we tell about him that people don't know? Where's Walt? Um, it's my magnum opus of my career. I'll never have anything like that again. Uh, I'll never be able to pay back Walt Disney in a greater way than that museum and to continue to do projects like the books like travels with Walt Disney or the Disney monorail that reinforce those ideas of why did he do what he did and what does this have to do with his character as a human being right it's very interesting that you've uh, you know spent so much of your time uh, preserving Walt's um, legacy and for different perspectives about him and I and I'm I know that's fascinating to a lot of people. We also want to talk to um, a, a little bit about maybe other stories that you have captured. And so when we last, uh, or this past summer, we talked to filmmaker Leslie Iwerks. Um, mm -hmm. She talked about wanting to preserve stories before they are forgotten. So I wanted to ask in your books, yes. um, has there been any one story in particular that you thought, wow, I, I'm really glad I documented this um, before it's gone? Is, is it like picking a favorite child or is there is there one or two stories that really stand out to you? Not in the book projects, but in the museum projects, the, the ones that come to mind right away. Of course, all of the book projects have a certain documentary aspect. Mm -hmm. And of course, as I get older and my body of work gets older, I look into my older books and go, gee, she's gone now. Or mm -hmm. he's not here anymore. I'm yeah. so glad that we worked on this or got to talk to them one of the people I miss most dreadfully is Marty Sklar because not only was he a great resource to interview or to say how did this or how did that Marty was a great mentor and had been a mentor to me since the 1980s he's really somebody who pushed me into doing Disney writing so 
it was months and months after he passed, I would find myself halfway through an email to him and then think, oh wait, he's not here anymore. Some of the things we were able to do in the museum that I'm, I'm really grateful for, we were able to reach out to people who are gone now. I remember there was an aspect of the museum when Walt passes and we had no, we didn't have anyone who was recollecting on the ground. Where were you that day? What were you doing? We didn't have that. So I called in some folks like, uh, A.J. Carruthers, the screenwriter, and uh, several other people that are on the video monitors, Floyd Norman, uh, some of the people who were there or who were around on that day. How did this hit you on that day? A.J. Carruthers, he was very ill at the time that he um, recorded that last interview for us. A delightful man, an incredibly intelligent guy. He did that interview and he did an interview with uh, for us with for the boys documentary one of the most exceptional thinkers i think uh about these subjects but he really gave us an eyewitness view of what happened the day that you heard did your phone ring was it on the pa system etc what was the thought in that moment or during that time the rest of that day the rest of that week some of the things that came out of that, so much of doing history that's compelling is providing context, little context. I remember somebody saying, the studio lot was all decorated for Christmas. It should have been so happy. And we weren't. You forget that it was December, mid-December. You might think of it as, as statistically a date on the calendar, but you don't think, oh yeah, the studio Christmas tree lighting had happened and the, there were wreaths and garlands and it was so unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, AJ, I remember, talks about having never seen such a collective outpouring of shared grief as that day at the studio. People having to be walked to their cars because they were so racked with sobbing Cataloging something like that only goes to the promise made to Diane Disney Miller about protecting her father's legacy and his identity. How many places can you think of where the boss passes away and the entire company grieves, let alone the entire world? I remember I was, how old was I? I was five on the day that Walt Disney died. And I remember coming into the living room of my family house and my mother sobbing. I think you're five. That's terrifying. What happened? She tried to pull herself together and tell me that Walt Disney died. And she told me later that I came back a little while later and asked if Mickey Mouse was dead too. I won't give myself credit for that precocious cuteness. That was a story. (laughs) But you realize, you know, uh, uh, 20-something housewife in Seattle, Washington, sobbing. Mm-hmm. I think keeping that identity for Walt Disney and keeping away from Funko Pop figures and paste-on felt <laughs> mustaches and stuff that turns Walt Disney into a cartoon is part of my responsibility. I tell people I had a somewhat absent parents when I was a child. 
and I was brought up by three fathers. They were Walt Disney and Richard and Robert Sherman. Those were my dads. And they are responsible for a lot of my emotional and intellectual makeup. Um, and that's the debt I owe to those three men and particularly to Walt. Because as Richard reminds me, without Walt, we wouldn't have known you. So that's what the, the career long span of capturing that information and putting it into places where people want to find out about it, putting it into Walt Disney's Imagineering Legends or even back to Since the World Began. What you do as a storyteller in culture is at the very best, I think you pass the talking stick around fire. And that's what I see a lot of my responsibility to, particularly the young readers and the younger fans that I have is getting them excited about it and telling them why it's important or why it's interesting at least. Maybe it's not important in the long run. I still think Walt Disney was one of the greatest, if not the greatest cultural influencer of the 20th century. It's important to keep him from becoming a caricature, whether as Diane said, whether it's the devil's right hand man or a plaster saint, he wasn't either. And to keep telling that story until I can't tell it anymore is what I'm supposed to do. Well, you do such a beautiful job with it. I mean, even just the, the way you can craft uh, an image and put us into a scene just by talking and speaking and, and really giving us and putting us in that place. It's just remarkable. Um, I've actually had the chance to begin to read your book, Practically Poppins in Every Way, A Magical Carpet Bag of Countless Wonders. Uh, and it's actually an anniversary gift for my wife, uh, but I know that she doesn't listen to us, so it's okay that I say that. Uh, now, that's not any kind of insult against you, just that she does not want to hear me anymore in the day that she has to. Um, but can you, you mentioned that Mary Poppins was a pivotal movie for you, and uh, can you speak to the process of writing a book for a movie? Because you've done several of those. And uh, is there different access than you get when writing about the theme parks? And is there one that you enjoy mo more than another? Or is it just kind of uh, part of the work that you put into each of your pieces? Part of the uh, Mary Poppins equation for me, of course, is that's the first movie I ever saw as a kid. And as I said earlier, it broke my brain. I mean, it, it flipped me out two hours and 20 minutes of sitting in absolute stillness, which apparently was unusual for me at that age. And the first thing I am told that I said afterward, because I don't remember the specifics, is can we see that again? As a kid, because I am elderly, we had, you know, three TV channels and there was no home video. There was no nothing. Your souvenir was a book, a souvenir program, or a soundtrack record. So I had, as a kid, the three, the top three Jeff Curdy playlists were Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and Tom Sawyer. Remarkably, I did not connect that it was Richard and Robert Sherman until I was probably 12. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, duh. No, that's okay. It's okay. <laughs> so Mary Poppins turned me on to who Walt Disney was and what he did. So it was a really vital personal culture element. That in turn led me to my uh, affection for the work of Richard and Robert Sherman and ultimately led me to 
a long time friendship and, and collaboration with Dick and Bob. I think Mary Poppins represents the culmination of everything Walt Disney knew how to do. And you look at it, it is the pillars of what we did at the Walt Disney Family Museum that we kept going back to philosophically were five basic pillars, family, storytelling, art, music, and innovation. Those are five key elements of what makes Disney Disney, even to this day. I think that it's, it's good to recognize that the Walt Disney Company understands that those are the elemental components that create a Disney culture. You see all of those on high display in Mary Poppins. It is really the magnum opus of what makes Walt Disney Walt Disney to me. So naturally, in about 1994 or 95, when I first met Wendy Lefcon, my editor at Disney Editions, I pitched her a Mary Poppins book, which she turned down. Um, so at some point, when was it? 2016, maybe? 2017, I'm not sure. I got a call from Wendy and she said, hey, remember that Mary Poppins book you pitched to me back in, yeah, well, let's do a Mary Poppins book. Um, she had come up with an idea of not just doing an art and making of Mary Poppins Returns, but let's look at the entire scope of the Mary Poppins culture, so to speak. Um, let's give everybody a backgrounding in where the story came from and, and details and background and things they might not know. So we began to structure the book and I looked this was something actually that Marty Sklar handed as a gift to me at one point when I was doing yet another book about Disneyland. I said, oh, good Lord, here's another book about Disneyland as if we don't know everything. And Marty said, you know, Jeff, book about Disneyland lined up on the shelf in sequential order the way that you do. This will be all new to somebody. <laughs> and Marty's suggestion for that Disneyland book came back to me working on the Mary Poppins book. He said, why don't you go through and look at things that have been written or other people who have an expertise and have them do essays or have them do a, an article or a piece of the book. And that was the emerging structure of the Practically Poppins in Every Way book was, there's nobody that knows Travers and, and that whole area to me as much as Brian Sibley does. So I asked Brian to contribute some things. Um, the literary Mary Poppins belongs to me to Paula Sigmund Lowry, who was at the archives for ages and founded uh, Disney Character Voices and Disney Collector Society and worked uh, together on the Walt Disney Family Museum. Paula's background is in library sciences and juvenile fiction is one of her things. So nobody knows as much and could create. I said, I'd like to do something about how the, the literary character and the film character, how they differ and how they complement. So I was able to do that and reach out to several people. I have a friend, Craig Barton, who, who has a, a website called Community. Community. Um, and he's very much into storytelling. And we talked about... Uh, and Craig came in and, and did an essay about uh, telling stories and telling them again. So once again, a whole lot of things. 
Uh, and then, of course, the universe conspires, too, because I went to London to Shepperton Studios to the set of Mary Poppins Returns. And I knew, of course, that an old, old friend of mine was involved in the production. But I went into the, uh, the exhibition area that they had set up for a bunch of us who were coming from Disney to look at the sets and get an overview of the production. And there was John Meyer, who is the Oscar-winning production designer who did Mary Poppins. He's finishing up Little Mermaid now, I think. John and I are both Seattle boys and met each other when we were teenagers working for the same theater chain. When I moved to LA in 1983, I stayed in, I crashed in John's apartment because he was out on a film location doing, doing PA work, I think. You know, we were both in our early 20s. So John and I have known each other basically our whole lives. And he walks in and is one of the key speakers to this Disney group. He walks up, puts his arm around my shoulder and says, now here's the guy if you want to know anything about Mary Poppins. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, really <laughs> so we got a lot of really good voices. John Meyer in the book about the production design and how they approached uh, Mary Poppins Returns, but also, of course, he was influenced by Tony Walton's original production design. And I said, hey, John, will you do a thing about an, an appreciation of Tony Walton? Because not only is John a, a great production designer, he's also a huge movie buff. So then I remembered from working, I do a lot of work with Disney Theatrical, and I was am friends with uh, Ashley Brown and Gavin Lee, mm -hmm. who played Mary and Bird on Broadway. I remembered that I was part of a, a project that introduced Gavin to Dick Van Dyke for the first time. Oh, wow. So I <laughs> called Gavin and said, would you do an essay about Dick Van Dyke? I thought nothing more interesting than having a viewpoint from Bert to Bert. Sure. So it was approaching the story of Mary Poppins from these different angles. And then, of course, we had access to wonderful photography and artwork in the animation research library and Walt Disney archives and so on. And Poppins is difficult for a book product too, because there are so many stakeholders and so many rights holders and so on. So it was a bear to clear things and, and get stuff and get approvals from Travers estate and Disney and film talent and all that. But what came out is is something I'm awfully proud of. One of my favorite things that I have is a wonderful photo that a friend sent me on a text message. He was on a recording stage with Richard Sherman and Mark Shaman. And I got a photo of both of them holding the Practically Poppins book and wow. obviously looking very pleased. That's a, a treasure wow. for me. So each film book is different. Uh, Mary Poppins is different from The Art of Tangled, is different from Princess and the Frog, is way different from Art of Mulan 20 years ago. Ideally, what I hope to do is create a microcosm when I do a film book, particularly. Um, the difference with Park's book is they tend to be retrospective. Film books typically are about something that has not yet happened and has, in many cases, zero cultural imprint. So working, um, my book was not call, called The Art of Tangled when it was in manuscript form. It was called The Art of Rapunzel because it had not been retitled Tangled yet. Uh -huh. um, so 
what you try to do with something that has a basically no cultural imprint yet is the best thing you can do is be a journalist mm -hmm. and go in embed as much as you can within the production and that's the gracious goodwill in the animation projects is uh being allowed to uh become a, an adjunct to that production team and what you do most of all is listen listen and take damn good notes and have your voice recorder going at all times um because what happens is they'll tell you the story of what's going on your job is to listen and document it and suddenly you'll be in your fourth interview i remember this my fourth interview where somebody mentioned the flynn smolder in tangled and what they were trying to do with flynn rider to give him essentially sexiness that was not a typical disney uh attribute or goal and if you listen to those stories being told and you suddenly hear it well, not once not twice not three but four or five or ten times that's part of their story the, the greatest compliments on a film book like tangled or princess and the frog was having the producer or the director say that's the story of our production yes you did that um and then goes i did I did uh, four different books for uh, Atlantis. Treasure Planet? No, Atlantis. Oh, Atlantis. And I got a wonderful email that's probably stuck in one of these books here on my shelf from Don Hahn that basically said, thank you for understanding what we were doing. Mm. That's, that's the goal when you're documenting something like... Um, a film production like that. So once again, different aspects based on different, uh, different subject matters, and different personalities. Just remarkable. You know, I, it, it's funny. You mentioned that it was your first movie because uh, my son, he's four now, but uh, when he was three years old, we, I, we went to uh, Mary Poppins returns kind of by ourselves to see how, uh, that movie might play out and we really wanted to experience that. And then we decided, you know what, there might be enough in here to keep a three-year-old's attention. And so we sat in the very back of the theater. It was a couple weeks after it came out and early in the morning. And then that way we could kind of bail on it if he wasn't interested. But it's like you right. were mentioning, uh, he was just transfixed for that whole two and a half hours that is Mary Poppins Returns and just absolutely loves Emily Blunt as Mary Poppins. And, and so that book is, is very special to our family too. And I can't wait to continue to dive into it. But Brad, I know you have a question about uh, his work on The Boys. Well, you mentioned the Sherman Brothers and how they were a big influence uh, on your career. And you were a producer on The Boys, The Sherman yes. Brothers Story. Uh -huh. And in the documentary, we learned so much about their creative work collaborations. But mm -hmm. we also get to learn of their very complicated and layered personal relationships. Yes. What was, it, what was it like working with them and sharing their very interesting and yet at times very bittersweet story? Um, much like the story of Walt Disney told in the museum, Dick and Bob are people. And they are siblings. They are extraordinarily creative minds. Their father was an extraordinary talent. 
they're extremely complex fellows. Now, I met Dick and Bob when I got my first job at Disney. I had an office on the studio lot. And I, of course, was completely overwhelmed every day walking onto that studio lot. But I was walking in, I think I was walking into the studio lot and I saw Richard and Robert Sherman walking out. This would have been, this would have been 1986 or so. And I said, oh my gosh, you're the Sherman brothers. Now, of course, you have to put yourself in context. Um, it's 1986. Nobody knows on site who Richard and Robert Sherman are. Um, there's no internet. There's no books or documentaries about them. Nobody spies them. Richard tells stories about how he was always being mistaken for Oscar Levant or um, Walter Matthau. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. You know, it's very That's funny. funny. Richard tells a very funny story about leaving the polo lounge at the Beverly Hills Hotel after Poppins was a big success and a lady stopping him and saying, oh, I've loved your work and I'm so glad that I ran into you and can I have your autograph? I just, and Richard thought, well, this is pretty great songwriters getting this kind of recognition because of the Mary Poppins and the Academy Awards. She said, oh yes, I've seen everything you've done, Mr. Mathau. Oh no. <laughs> Oops. And I, I, said to, I said to Richard, what'd you do? Right. He said, I took her autograph book and I wrote best wishes, Walter Matthau. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. But I saw Dick and Bob in the parking lot and said, my gosh, you're the Sherman brothers. And Bob, of course, piped back and said, we sure are. Who the hell are you? <laughs> so I introduced myself and Tom Sawyer had just come out on home video at around that time, I believe. I had just seen it again for one reason or another. Anyway, it was very much on my mind because it was the first time I had seen that they were the screenwriters. So I talked to them for half an hour about the adaptation of the screenplay, which got me in very good stead with Bob particularly, but they were mesmerized that I knew dialogue from Tom Sawyer, chapter and verse, as, as Richard would say. He knows Tom Sawyer, chapter and verse. Um, Two weeks later, I was going into Walt Disney Imagineering over in Glendale. There was Dick and Bob walking out the door. I have a friend who says coincidence is God wishing to remain anonymous. And I think that those two circumstances really did that. They came out the door and Dick said, hey, it's our Tom Sawyer guy. Uh -huh. So we wound up standing for another half an hour talking about stuff and Bob reached into his pocket and took out a card and said, this is our number and this is our studio. And why don't you come over and visit? Sounds like we have lots to talk about. Wow. <laughs> so over the course of the next several years, what I did a lot with Dick and Bob was they were at an era in their career where they were the old school guys. Oh, they were so old fashioned. Um, Alan Menken tell, told a story about being there for doing some Little Mermaid or, or some kind of, of pitching. And the guy from the music department was saying, well, you know, I got the Sherman Brothers down the hall. But, you know, that's sort of the space they occupied in the mid to late 1980s with Disney. So I set about doing everything I could to rectify that. So uh, I was in a position in many times for things like press events, project launches, openings, where they were looking for Disney people 
And I would very often suggest Sherman Brothers. You know, they are terrific interviews. They're wonderful. So they would come and do press events and it led to some of the Walt Disney Records uh, product and stuff that happened during that period. Um, it's funny because Alan Menken, I, I reminded him of that story. I saw him a couple years ago at an event we were talking and he said, yeah, I think I'm that guy now. I think I'm the guy that's in the place down the hall while they have, you know, <laughs> Kristen and Bobby are over there doing, <laughs> doing their new score and I'm the old guy down the hall. <laughs> I said, you're the old guy with eight Oscars down the hall. Yeah. Well, that, that, yes. You know, but um, it was that sort of, and then we got into involved in talking about doing a book. And of course, that was in probably the early 90s. Nobody wanted a book about two old songwriters who worked with Walt Disney that didn't say Walt Disney was awful. Walt Disney was, you know, evil. Everybody was looking for the salacious memoir. And God knows Dick and Bob had nothing, nothing to say about that. They had no such experience. Um, so we, we worked and worked on trying to get a book together and finally did a book in 1996 called Waltz Time from Before to Beyond. And, um, that, uh, I think really helped them a great deal to at least document how they felt about their careers and about, about their work with Walt. Going into the production of the boys, uh, Greg Sherman and Jeff Sherman, uh, Dick's son and Bob's son, respectively, put together this documentary project. And both Richard and Robert said, you got to have Jeff come do this. Bob gave me uh, a Sherman Brothers name. He called me the Shermanologist. Oh, wow. Jeff is our Shermanologist. So that's <laughs> probably the greatest honor of my entire career. That is the, so cool. The Sherman Brothers gave me a Sherman word. Um, yeah. So I came in and to a large degree, I was the, I was the encyclopedia Sherman, but also <laughs> I, I knew where everything was. That is to say, I knew where they could, I knew the infrastructure of Disney enough or actually pretty darn thoroughly to go, oh yeah, you know what would go good here is there's footage of Walt feeding birds in Kensington Park. Oh, and I knew of it and knew where it was. Or, yes, that's called the General Electric Management film because they were looking for the footage of Walt with Sherman Brothers. So I could find and track down and knew where to get things and how to get them and so on. And in many cases could just help guide the background and accuracy of, of stuff. The other thing too, is I was able to reach out to people that I knew and that I'd worked with. I remember Robert Osborne uh, was one of them. Uh, Robert was a good friend of mine and they were going to New York and said, I said, you should have Bob Osborne because he really knows a lot about the Tin Pan Alley era of songwriting and he understands Dick and Bob from a larger perspective in Hollywood. Um, so I was able to set them up with some of the interviews and, and help them in that way. And then I was on camera. I think I look like Brando and the Godfather as the boys, but <laughs> oh. I, uh, Hardly. But, but I also, uh, was an on camera interview subject as well. So, uh, that was, 
That was a really remarkable, and it remains a really remarkable piece of work. I think it's very evergreen in the sense that it really does document that partnership and those people so well. It's so interesting too, because it also, to me, always reinforces the cultural importance of Dick and Bob's work. Mm -hmm. um, because I have so many people come to me and say, what was the falling out? I said, well, there really wasn't an incident. There were many incidents over the years. But the bottom line is right there in the first 15 minutes or so of the film. The question put to both Dick and Bob is something about what was your relationship in, uh, as you were children. And Dick says, oh, he was my best friend. He was my hero. And Bob says, I didn't really know him. Wow. And I always say to people, that's the crux of the story right there because yeah. it's a classic sibling duo. And each boy has their own emotional connection, their own recollection, their own feeling about what that relationship entails. Fate threw them together as a professional and creative team. It doesn't mean they had to be best friends. And I think that that's when I speak about the cultural resonance of their work. We desire for them to have an emotional symmetry and clarity commensurate with the work that they did because all their statements musically tend to have an enormous storytelling skill and they make us feel something that is whole. And I think that that's when you watch the boys and you're, you feel maybe disappointed at the end that they weren't interpersonally connected the way we would hope them to be. It's because we love their work so much and we want that wholeness for them. But I think there's no greater example of who they were. If you watch the boys, there's a moment where Richard reads a poem that Bob wrote to him. And you listen to Bob's words because Bob was not terribly verbal. Bob got a reputation for being the grouchy one because Bob was quiet. And Richard is, is the very energetic entertainer of the, the boys. But you see that scene where Richard reads a poem that Bob wrote to him, I think on his 50th birthday. That's all you need to know about the Sherman brothers right there. Mm -hmm. Listen to Bob's words and watch how Richard reacts. There it is. There it that's, is. That's their story. Wow. Well, thank you. For, oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. And it also includes the How I Met the Sherman story and her own Sherman terminology for you. That is, I, I, that is, is. exceptional. <laughs> I'm telling you, put a nickel in me and I will go <laughs> all <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> it just speaks to your, it speaks to your work because all these people are so... Um, like you said, the stories of the emails that you get back from productions and from Don Hahn and, and the Shermans, it's just because, uh, and you can tell in just the way you express all this that you are a fan through and through. What an amazing conversation we are having with Jeff Curdy. And actually, we're going to divide this up into a two-part episode for you. And we can't wait to bring you the next half of our interview with Jeff Curdy next week, same Beyond the Mouse time, same Beyond the Mouse channel. Thoughts on how it's going so far, Brett? Oh, I've learned so much. And we've just, and we're halfway through. 
I can't believe it. It's so exciting. I think uh, we just need to enlist him to have the Jeff Curdy podcast because this is just incredible. I'm eating up every moment of this. Vanessa? Yeah, I think we're being replaced. You you all don't need to listen to us anymore. Just listen to Jeff. He's got great stories. And I'm in suspense for part two of this podcast. Absolutely. We will see you next week for Beyond the Mouse. I am Craig. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Brett. And we will see you real soon in the front row. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode, a proud member of the Front Row Network of Shows on NPR Illinois. For the past five years, we've been providing hours of content every month, and now we've created the chance for all of you to get even more content. We've officially launched our Patreon page to give you the chance to support our work. There are four separate levels, and each come with their own amazing bonus perks, including exclusive episodes, full movie commentary tracks, and even the ability to choose what episodes we do and be on the with us. To show your support, simply go to www.patreon.com slash front row network. That's patreon.com slash front row network. Thank you again. And as always, we'll see you in the front row.